Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. One of my favorite things is bringing in new members. And so we're going to bring in, we brought in Leah Sittler in the first service. We're going to be bringing in Sean and Alicia Barron and, and, and Crystal Ellis. So um, uh, let me read to you... Uh, the membership vows. Listen carefully as I present to you the covenant of membership by which you pledge your allegiance to God and fidelity to the church. As a member of the Brethren in Christ Church, I accept the Bible as the word of God in which is revealed the way of salvation and the guide for faith and conduct. I witness to a personal experience of God's saving grace in my heart and express desire and purpose to live a holy life apart from sin and separated unto Christ. I covenant as a member of the Brethren in Christ Church to be loyal to this congregation, to consent to instruction in Bible doctrine, to support and sustain the services of the congregation by my regular attendance and prayers, to contribute to the program of the Lord as the Lord prospers me, and to foster a spirit of Christian fellowship and oneness within the church. If this is your purpose, will you affirm this covenant by answering, I do. I do. Well, let's start down here. Crystal, will you share, and I'm going to hold the mic, will you share with us how you came to the Lord? Well, how I came to the Lord, I was in a very dark place. My father had passed away, and I couldn't shake the grief, and I got very depressed, and I just sat down in my mother's family room in the dark with the TV on, and I called the prayer channel, uh, the prayer line, and a preacher prayed with me for almost six months. I couldn't sleep. I had bad dreams. And I would always ask God, why is this happening to me? Why, why is it taking so long to you know, feel better or get out of the way I'm feeling? And as that preacher kept preaching to me, he would keep saying, you have to holler out to God. You have to say, I need you. I need you to help me. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was so silly. I didn't think that it was happening. I was trying to do it myself, and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And for 18 months, I went through this. Mm -hmm. The very night that I just couldn't take it no more, and I hollered out, and I told God, I need you. I can't handle this anymore. Take it away from me, please. It changed my whole world in, within Amen. that night. Amen. And I started getting better, and everything was great. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sean, how did you come to know the Lord? Um, through my experiences when I was younger, um, I had a, a rough relationship with my father, so whenever... I was in church with my family and always heard you're a good, good father. I was always kind of a, 
a weird thing to hear because I, I didn't understand what it meant to be a good, good father. Um, and with my family, we had always had a church upbringing, so you, um, it was just something that I was struggling with forgiving my father for stuff that he had done when I was younger, and it's just, it's been a process. Um, and <clears throat> it was something that I needed to do through Christ to forgive him, um, and still as, as a process. <laughs> um, and it's something I still continue with us this day. So you're on a journey. <laughs> yes. We're glad you're here on the journey. We'll help you. Alicia, how did you come to know the Lord? Well, I've always grown up in the church. Um, I went to church with my mom. She was a Baptist, and my dad was a Lutheran. They were both separated, so going to both churches and learning all about um, both different and how they believe in God and what they do. Um, and then I came out here to Messiah for college, and I started coming here. And Sean's brother goes here and their family, so I started coming with them, and I just felt at home here. Okay. Praise the Lord. <laughs> You've heard the commitment these brothers and sisters are willing to make to you into this church. Will you covenant with them to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and to live a life of love toward one another, just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you? If so, will the members of this congregation please indicate this by standing? And will all of you stand and join us in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Alicia and Sean and Crystal. We thank you that you sent them to be a part of us. Lord, may we treasure them and love them. And Lord, we pray that we together will grow in Christ grow in the Spirit, become knit together in love. We pray you use their gifts for your glory and use their lives, Lord, in ways that, that change the world, both great and small. Thank you that they are here. And thank you, Lord, for their love to us, our love to them, and your love for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Upon your testimony and acceptance of the membership covenant, we welcome you into the membership of this church with all its privileges and responsibilities associated. Crystal, here's your certificate of membership. <laughs> Alicia, here's yours. And Sean, here's yours. Let us welcome them into the fellowship. Amen. When the service is over, you guys go stand and let people hug you in the lobby, okay? Even if, even if, just let everybody hug you, okay? <laughs>
For three days they traveled into the desert without finding water. Then they came to Marah. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. In chapter 16, verse 1, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Zin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This is In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. By the way, before I start this uh, sermon, I do want to say that this is National Pro-Life Week weekend, and uh, I heard good news this week, that in 2016, there were less abortions performed in the United States than since when it, the lowest since Roe v. Wade was put into law. Now, we're still over 900,000 abortions, unfortunately, but this is the lowest since Roe v. Wade. So, praise the Lord for that. Now, back to this. To say that the people of Israel were an unhealthy community would be an understatement. They were grumblers. Did you get that from the text this morning? They whined, they complained, nothing, nothing seemed to make them happy. Their attitude stretched Moses to the limit. Their attitude stretched God to the limit, which is saying something. Israel's grumbling would eventually cause Moses to ask the Lord to kill him. Have you ever prayed that? I've gotten there a time or two. Just take me now. I want to go now. And their grumbling later caused God to make an offer to Moses that I might have had a hard time refusing. He said, I'll kill them all. We'll start over, Moses. Just say the word. Why did the Israelites have such lousy attitudes? Part of the reason was that the people, that that Israel thought that deliverance from Egypt meant that life would be easy. No more problems, no more tough times. Instead, they found themselves in the desert. And in the desert, you tend to get hot and thirsty and water is rare. 
They got hungry and they didn't have a ready food supply. They said, this is hard. God delivered us. It's not supposed to be hard after you get delivered. We didn't expect this. Lesson number one. Just because God delivers you and saves you doesn't mean life gets easy. Because life never gets easy. In fact, if you really follow Jesus, you become a target. Hell will come after you. If you follow Christ, lots of things will get better. But I need to tell you, a lot of things will get worse. False expectations ruined the people of Israel's attitudes. They became disillusioned, bitter, despondent. Oh, if we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we ate all the food we wanted. Really? Isn't it amazing how we look back with rose-colored glasses? They're in slavery, but we ate all the food we wanted? And, you know, and we had pots of meat, big old pots of meat. I don't think so. Now we're here and we're hungry. We're going to starve to death. Why didn't God just kill us before he drug us out here? If you follow Christ, life will be better, but it will never be easy. Battles will be fought. Resistance will come. In Psalms 34, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Both things are equally true. The Lord delivers us, but many are the afflictions of the righteous. Israel never learned to embrace difficulties and turn them into challenges. I don't fault Israel for not liking the desert. Who likes living in a desert? I don't fault them from grumbling. They weren't ready for this. How could they be ready for this? The truth is, we're never ready for what's coming that's really tough, are we? The goal is not to be ready, but to be open to God growing us in the desert. To be open to new possibilities, even in the wilderness. Maybe, just maybe, the God who got us out of Egypt can handle the desert too, hallelujah. Maybe we don't need to be ready. We need to trust God one day at a time, day after day. Let me ask you, were you ready when your first kid was born? You, you might have thought you were, but you weren't. Were you ready for marriage right there at the altar? <laughs> were you ready when they told you that tumor was malignant? I know one couple said, that had their first kid, and they went, what if the baby gets sick? What if one of us drops her? What if we discipline her too little or discipline her too much? What if we're not healthy enough for her to be healthy? What if we mess up her whole life? The husband gently responded, Honey, we can always have more kids. <laughs> if we screw this one up, we'll get another one. Let me put it this way. Israel was on the adventure of a lifetime. They were being led by God Almighty into a whole new land and a whole new existence. And the journey, to say the least, would be eventful. There would be challenges and hardships and enemies and crises of every kind. But one thing that happens when you follow God, if you really follow God, it is never boring. In fact, if the journey is, is not eventful and, and you find yourself getting bored, it's probably because you're not following that close to the God who gets you in trouble all the time. God does not lead his people into places that are safe. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It doesn't say, you know, when I, when I get to the Hilton. 
Steve Brown had a missionary friend who serves in one of the poorest and most oppressed countries in the world. And he talked to her when she was home on furlough, and he asked her if she was going back to that country. And she smiled and said, but of course. And he said, why do you want to go back to that place? And she said, I'm going back because I've been called by God to go back. I have a calling. And Steve Brown asked her, what is your calling? And I love her response. She said, I have been called to plant flowers in hell. Isn't that all of our callings? To plant seeds of hope and beauty and faith and love in places of life so God can grow flowers in hell? To say God is great and God is good even when all hell is breaking loose? Folks, God can grow flowers anywhere and everywhere. Attitudes matter. Israel simply could not let go of the past. Some people are always looking back on how great things used to be before so-and-so came along. Have you ever noticed that? Dr. Howard Hendricks used to say, those good old times are what created these bad old times that we're having these days. Our God is the great I am, not the great I was. God is working now. I got news for you. He didn't shut down shop after camp meeting 50 years ago. He's still on the move. Moses kept the proper attitude when things went wrong. What was his main strategy? He ran to the God who is alive and well now. The Israelites just pined for the good old days of meat pots. Boy, that's something to pine away for. Leeks and onions and meat pots. Let me tell you a secret. Israel's real problem wasn't grumbling. Moses grumbled. If you read Scripture, Moses grumbled all the time. The real secret is not grumbling. It's who you grumble to. Moses fussed and, and argued and complained with God, and the more he did it, the bigger his soul grew. Israel grumbled about God, not with God, and their souls shriveled. There's a huge difference in grumbling with God or about Him. Don't you agree? And by the way, when I talk about grumbling, it's okay to grumble to God. It's also good, okay to have close friends with spiritual maturity to grumble to, too. Every now and then, I need to grumble to somebody. When Alabama got cheated out of the national championship, I called Hank up and said, Hank, I need to grumble. They cheated us. And listen to Dabo Sweeney give God the glory for cheating Alabama. just went down hard. Here's another truth about attitudes. They spread. They are contagious. They're like a virus in a computer. I think I got that right. We can speak life into a situation or death into it. We can speak hope into a situation or pessimism. There are, you're contagious. Whether you know it or not, you're contagious. You can pollute the atmosphere or inject health into it. A bad attitude can go a long way. A few rebellious teens, teens can derail a whole youth group. A couple of angry, controlling adults can ruin a PTA meeting. A hypercritical Sunday school teacher can split a church. 
A bitter person can destroy morale in the workplace. Attitudes spread. Bad ones and good ones. Israel found that out. What does that mean for us? It means brothers and sisters, if you got something good to say to somebody, say it. If you can bless someone, it is your Christian obligation to bless them. If you can encourage something, don't hold back. Your job is to pollute the atmosphere with life and grace and hope. We all, you know, whether we have a healthy church or not is up to every one of us. We are all responsible for the atmosphere around here. And that means we have realistic expectations about our journey together. You know, people get disillusioned by church all the time. Have you noticed that? The church is full of hypocrites. A park church is full of people that are... Yes! <laughs> yes, it is. Please understand something. Church is not easy. All close relationships with high commitment are hard. Ask any married couple if they've had a few bumps in the road. Can I get a witness? I heard one brave soul out there. I'll see you next week. <laughs> Ask college students living with three other people if there's some tension in the room. Community, real community is difficult. Don't be disillusioned because things are difficult. Expect them. Israel didn't expect hard times. You need to expect hard times, even in church. A husband was just coming out of anesthesia after a series of tests in the hospital, and his wife was sitting at his bedside. His eyes fluttered open, and he murmured to his wife, Honey, you're beautiful. Flattered, his wife continued her vigil while he drifted back to sleep. A little while later, he woke up and he said, Honey, you're cute. What happened to beautiful, she said. The anesthesia's wearing off, he said. If you hang around church long enough, the anesthesia's going to wear off. You're going to discover it's full of imperfect people with all kinds of differences of opinions. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Look at all the fights Paul got in. He got in a fight with John Mark. He got in a fight with Peter. He got in a fight with Barnabas. He got in a fight with the Corinthians. He got in a fight with the Galatians. He even called the Galatians in a letter. He said, you are stupid, and you need to whack off certain parts of your anatomy. Jesus himself expected difficulty in the church. Why do you think he gave us Matthew 18 on how to work out our problems? Or why do you think he prayed in John 17, the prayer for unity? The last great prayer of Jesus was, oh God, help them get along. Because he knew Christian unity and health was not an easy thing to maintain. Please know this, Jesus expected trouble, especially in multi-ethnic churches where we already have so many differences already. He expected tensions, he expected messes. If you're not getting rubbed the wrong way from time to time in community, you're probably not experiencing real community. Amen? If somebody has ticked you off in the last five years here, say amen. Have I ticked? I know I haven't ticked anybody off, Pastor Sandra. Well, I think maybe two people in the last five minutes. Okay. Closeness means discovering our differences, our differences of opinions, our faults. 
in healthy Christian community, we do not cover over our differences or hurts. The real question is how do you handle the stuff? Paul tells us we're called to work it out in love, to speak the truth in love to each other. We are called to, as he says in Galatians 6, to restore each other in a spirit of gentleness and humility. Don't be disillusioned when the church has problems. It's how we handle the problems that matter. And some churches handle them well, and some churches destroy themselves because they cannot handle them well. That is the truth. By the way, I just want to say, despite all of our differences and all the issues that are in this church, you handle them well. This, I can say, this is a healthy church. That doesn't mean we don't tick each other off or disagree on stuff, but in Christ we work it out. Amen? The most amazing part of Israel's complaining to me is that they had to ignore a massive amount of God's work and blessings to do it. They complained about Egypt, and so God delivered them from Egypt. They complained about bitter water, so God gives them water that was good. They complained about hunger, and so God gave them manna. And then they later on, they complained about manna, and God gave them quail. And it never stopped. Wine, wine, wine. As I read some of these texts, my thought came to me that what did it take for them to be grateful after all they saw and received from the hand of the Lord? Isn't it amazing that we can ignore what's right in front of us so much? We can ignore so many blessings. We do it all the time. Craig Groeschel said that when he was a young pastor, a man who had a dangerous depression came to his office. Groeschel said, I asked him if he ever thought of taking his own life. And he said, I wasn't surprised when he said, I think about taking my life all the time. For the next 20 minutes or so, this young man named Scott told Groeschel all the reasons he had nothing to live for. Toxic self-talk flowed like sewage through a busted dam. I'm not good at anything. No one loves me. No one will ever love me. I'll never get married. I'm a total failure. And on and on he went. As a young pastor, he said, I wasn't sure what to do. So I prayed quickly, silently for wisdom and direction. And I, he said, I believe God prompted me to do something I've never done before or since. He said, I grabbed a notepad and told Scott, We're going to give, you're going to give me a hundred reasons you have to live. He stared blankly at Groeschel as he wrote down the numbers. And he said, what's reason number one? Scott reiterated his hopeless stance. I told you I don't have any reasons to live. But Groeschel would not back down, and he pressed him, and he said, Tell me something you're good at, anything, just tell me one thing. Scott conceded and said emotionally, Okay, I'm a pretty good writer. And he was. Scott wrote newsletters for his company and had unquestionably a writing talent. There you go, Groeschel said. Number one, you're a good writer. Give me number two. Scott hesitated again. I told you, and he started down the same litany. Number two, Groeschel said, taking, not taking no for an answer. Scott looked at him and said, I'm, I'm funny without cracking a smile. I'm a funny guy. 
And Groeschel said he was a funny guy. He had a seriously dry and witty sense of humor that people rarely saw. So Groeschel said, I wrote it down and said it out loud for effect. Number two, you are a funny guy. Number three. Scott said, well, I look a lot like Robert Redford. He did not look like Robert Redford. And so Groeschel wrote down, you are a very funny guy. <laughs> and finally, there was a hint of a smile and a small breakthrough. Number four. Before long, Scott started getting into the exercise. Evidently, he did have many reasons to live that he was oblivious to moments earlier. Within a few minutes, Groeschel said, I was filling in blanks as fast as I could write. Once Scott worked past his lousy attitude and negative self-talk, he actually did see lots of positive traits about himself. He had a sister who looked up to him. He had a small group of people he prayed for daily. He served Thanksgiving dinner to the homeless. He sponsored a Compassion International child in Chile. One by one, we plowed through a hundred specific and different reasons why Scott should live in that one session. At the end of the, their time together, Scott seemed genuinely touched. And Groeschel recommended professional counseling for him, that, and he agreed to go see a professional counselor that he gave him the name for. Then he said, I prayed for Scott and gave him his list of reasons to live. And several months later, Scott moved to another town, and I lost track of him. He said, you can only imagine how shocked I was a dozen years later to see Scott walking down the aisle at my church to introduce me to his beautiful wife, and his wonderful family. This man who no one loved or would ever love and who would never get married. And he, Scott tried to thank him for their time together, but he couldn't get his words out because of his tears. Groeschel said, I'll never forget the moment when Scott reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, and presented to me a tattered piece of paper with a hundred reasons why he should live. He had carried it in his wallet for 12 years. He carried it with him as a reminder. And then he handed him the sheet and said, I don't need this anymore. God has written hundreds of more reasons on my heart. That's why it's important to keep right attitudes. It's so that we can see what is right in front of us. It's so that we can see reality. And this reminds us, gratitude is a decision. Worship is a decision. It is choosing whether you will focus on God or circumstances today. It is choosing whether you will focus on God's gifts or Egypt's leeks and onions. It is choosing whether you will see heaven and work in the desert or be despondent about being in the desert. Our job is to focus on God, not the sand and the cacti, it is to keep things in perspective no matter what is going on. God is God no matter what is going on. One of my favorite stories is by Robert Fulgham about a wedding. He said this wedding was produced on an epic scale by an unhinged character only known as the mother of the bride. You've heard of bridezillas? This was mother of the bridezilla. And she went nuts with this wedding. She hired an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble to play for it. She had gift registries 
spreading across most of the continental United States. They had 24 bridesmaids, groomsmen, flower petal throwers, and ring bearers. It looked like a small invasion. And the plans were all working until just before the bride was to come down the aisle. And Fulgham writes this. He goes, ah, the bride. She had been dressed for hours, if not days. No adrenaline was left in her body. Left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church while the march of the maidens went on and on and on. She walked along the tables laden with gourmet goodies and absentmindedly sampled first a pink mint and then a yellow mint and then the green mints. And then she moved on to the mixed bowls of, of nuts she ate all the pecans. Then she started into the cheese balls and ate some of them. Then the black olives. Then a handful of glazed almonds. Then she moved on to the sausage with the frilly toothpick stuck in it. Then she moved on to the shrimp blanketed in bacon. And then she finished up with a, the crackers piled with liver pate. And to wash this down, her father gave her a glass of pink champagne to calm her nerves. And he said, what you notice when the bride stood in the doorway of the sanctuary was not her dress, even though it was beautiful. What you noticed was her face. It was white. It was whiter than her dress. He said, for what was coming down the aisle was a hand grenade with a pin pulled out. The bride threw up. Just as she walked by her mother-in-law, she threw up. And he says, by threw up, I don't mean a polite little ladylike burp into the handkerchief. She puked. There's no nice word for it. He said, I mean she hosed the front of the church. She hit two bridesmaids, the groom, the ring bearer, and the preacher. Only two people were left smiling. One was the mother of the groom who hated the mother of the bride. And the other was the father of the bride who thought that was hilarious. Everybody, I can't say dusted themselves off. <laughs> Wiped, whatever. And they went on with the wedding. And everybody cried at the wedding, as people are supposed to do at weddings. Mostly because the groom held the bride in his arms, his poor sick bride through the whole ceremony. Vomit all, all over both of them. And they said, no groom ever kissed a bride more tenderly than he, <laughs> despite her vomit breath. <laughs> How could all these people rejoice when everything had gone wrong? Because they never lost perspective. In spite of the mess, guess what? The bride still got the groom. And the groom still got the bride. And at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters? They never lost perspective. They kept the right attitude. In fact, they got to practice their wedding vows right there that day at the altar. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Let's take that one out for a spin. Their love was what mattered, not a perfect wedding. By the way, that's what I have to, whenever I do a wedding, and pre, the last thing I say in premarital counseling is, 
This is not about a perfect production. This is about you enjoying the love you have for each other before God and family and friends. Forget perfection today. We never should forget, also, while we're thinking about this, that we are the bride of Christ. And in the end, we get the groom too. He is waiting for us. He is preparing a special place specifically for each of us in our personalities, in our, in our, in our situations in life, in our, in, in our talents, in our tastes. And nothing can separate us from His love. We are the bride, not because we're perfect, but because He who is perfect has chosen us. We are the bride, not because of our goodness, our knowledge, our commitment, our church structure. We are the bride because we have received pure grace and grace upon grace. We are the bride because we are gathered in His name, gathered in His goodness, rejoicing in His commitment to us, worshiping and taking in His perfect love. That is why we are here today for worship. Life is going to throw a lot of chunks at you. It's important to remember you're the bride and he's the groom. These thoughts should infect our hearts and minds. They should saturate our attitudes. They should pollute the atmosphere around here. Such thoughts should cause us to worship no matter where we are in the desert or how far we are from the promised land. And some of us feel mighty far from the promised land today. Again, I do think of Rita. They haven't been able to really count how many broken ribs she has right now. They don't know all the injuries. Her face, her face is fractured. She has a tube through her skull into her brain to let blood drain out. She is in excruciating pain and they cannot give her much pain medication because of the brain injury. And yet, she, she cannot talk. And she, and yet, you can tell there's somebody in there. Because when you ask her to squeeze your hand, she can squeeze your hand. When you, you know, you, there's somebody trying to communicate. But the thing that moves me is what Hank said. She is lying in this bed in excruciating pain. And she is humming praise to Jesus day and night in that hospital. Because God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And the groom is with part of the bride in that hospital room, and she can't forget it. Love is in that hospital room. Grace is in that hospital room. Healing is in that hospital room. And she is rejoicing because Jesus is in that hospital room with her. Our groom holds us. Even when we're sick or lost or have vomit breath, let us rejoice and be glad in Him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Praise the Lord. It was a hard week. I'd like to, Randy and Marilyn to come. It was a hard week. I could, it would take a while to go down the list. But, but God is sufficient and God is good. And although many are the afflictions of the righteous, God will deliver us from them all, and he's started. And so we praise him for that.
Let us worship God. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. We'll pray for you about anything. And let us stand and let us worship the Lord. It indeed has been a hard week. There have been other hard weeks. In 1714, the Queen Anne of England was dying. She was a good queen, unlike the kings before her, but they didn't know what was coming next. So Isaac Watts wrote this wonderful hymn, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Shall we sing?